Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Song of Songs. I'll be reading uh, several sections here uh, this morning, beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. This song is part of the wisdom literature and the tradition of uh, King Solomon, very likely written uh, sometime during his reign. And we know there are many proverbs and poems that were written by Solomon or for Solomon, uh, though the final author here of the Song of Songs uh, remains a mystery to us. But we're listening in through this uh, language of uh, poetry, an unfolding love story uh, between a woman and her shepherd, really a language of longing, a longing uh, between a man and woman who desire to be together, they desire to e- enjoy each other, uh, anticipating the consummation of their uh, marital union. And so a lot like the, the chorus of chorus of folks we read about here in this song, the chorus of others, uh, we, get to, uh, we get to listen in here a little bit and, and wonder and anticipate with them. Um, and also there's this, this protection and caring for this vineyard of love. Um, so we, we don't want to see or hear of, of anything that would hurt this uh, or hinder their intimacy. You can follow along with me. I'll begin reading at 3, verse 1. This is the woman speaking. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me and they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now turn the page with me to chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, and the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in this city, and they beat me, they bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. Find some really striking parallels uh, in these sections of love poetry. But uh, let's ask the Lord's help as we gaze upon him through his word. Lord God, you are working your word to perform it. Oh, show us wonderful things from your law on this day, that through this poetry of love, 
we might know your love for us all the more. Lord, guide our understanding into this, your word. Teach us, encourage us, warn us, we pray. Lord, we need the help of your Holy Spirit now uh, to learn and to apply this word. Make us attentive, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I went to bed last Sunday night, I was flipping through the song, reading these sections, wondering how in the world I was going to approach this portion of the poem. So I asked the Lord's guidance, and then I went to bed. And wouldn't you know it, I dreamed that I was standing right here or in other places talking to folks about how I was going to approach this song, Um, which I found, you know, it wasn't creepy or anything, but um, it really was a, a very real real example of what we find here in this love song. Uh, We dream about things or people that we are often thinking about. We dream about desires that we have that we may not know how to express, desires that we would never want to express. And yet somehow they take shape in our dreams. And so this woman opens by saying, on my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. Now, how do you seek someone if you are on your bed? Well, you're seeking that one in your heart and in your mind. Um, So this woman is dreaming. The language just easily lends itself to this type of, of repetition. It may even be a recurring dream. She's lost her beloved. She's searching for the one that she loves. Um... And I think here's where we encounter some of the most challenging issues of interpretation in this whole song. When does this dream come to an end? When, when is you know, the dialogue between these lovers a part of her dream and when is it real life? And uh, when are they actually in the bedroom enjoying each other or still in anticipation of all of this? And so we could fill this room with Bible scholars and we would have uh, lots of different answers uh, to that question. But I think 5-2 is an important clue, a really important clue for us. I slept, but my heart was awake, so she's dreaming again. Is it another dream, a continuation of this dreamlike state that she's in? And so whether this is one long dream uh, from uh, 3-1 through about 6, verse 3, or multiple dreams, I really don't think it alters our interpretation that this couple is not yet physically together. They are enjoying each other and the fruit of their desires in the dreams of this woman. Um, So I want to recognize that it's not the only or necessary uh, interpretation of this section. Uh, But if the couple is actually together uh, in verses, uh, like in chapter 4, verse 16, 5, verse 1, Awake, O north wind, O come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. And here's a picture of the sexual consummation, all of its wonder. If that is real life and not a dream, then everything that comes after 5 verse 1 is this marital bliss in different uh, stages, frustrated, restored, uh, through the end of the song. That's possible, but I think there's enough language in chapter 7, early part of chapter 8, that really gives us cause for pause there. Let us go to the vineyard. There I will give you my love, she says in 7 verse 12. Do not awaken love until it pleases. Again, uh, we hear in 8 verse 4. Um, So we really are left wondering if they consummated their union or not. So if this is an unfolding 
drama, a single literary unit, uh, then it makes sense that that consummation would come um, near the end of the poetry. So that's the path we're on. Uh, I'm, I'm taking from chapter 3 through the opening of chapter 6 as a dream or recurring dreams uh, of this woman. She's dreaming about the wedding day and fulfillment of their sexual desires. doesn't have to be this way, but I think it's sound. And I can hear an objection to that. Uh, Brad, that sounds like a, a convenient hermeneutical exit. You know, say whatever it is you want it to say. Call it a dream. Dreams are weird, so let's move on, right? Um, and I, I get that. Uh, but I also think uh, we can still say dreams are weird and that this makes sense. What we would expect to find in a dream is what we find here. Very appropriate explanation for what this poetry uh, shows us. Because dreams are scary. They can be scary. Um, dreams can be nightmarish. There's fear in dreams. There's erotic fantasy in dreams. Even imaginative sort of transformation in our dreams. Uh, we see all of this happening in the dreams here of this woman. She's lost her beloved. She's searching. She's hurt. We see both of them frustrated. But in the end, you know, they are back together again in this happily ever after of her dreams. Lost and found. It's the title of our message, but it's really the two, two main points uh, from this love poetry. So in her dream, the woman of this poetry is searching. She's searching for the shepherd, the man that she loves. We don't know why they're separated, but they are. It seems to be tearing her apart. Dreams are strange. They mix what's familiar and sort of bizarre, together. Deepest desires, fears are magnified in dreams. So if you have a, sphere of, uh, a fear of spiders, I know there's more of you out there than just me, um, then before you know it, you're dreaming of arachnophobia, right? And there's, you know, poisonous spiders everywhere. Uh, so this woman has a real fear of being abandoned, losing the one that she loves, losing the, the intimacy and closeness that she has grown to cherish and is anticipating. And we find a parallel to this search in chapter 5, uh, 2 through 9. A different scene in her mind, a poetic dream, not actual events here, but now she's married and her beloved desires to be close to her, to enjoy their sexual union, but he, she, she refuses his advances. Again, we don't know why that is, but after some arousal, she changes her mind and goes to search for him. She risks taking to the streets, and this time the watchmen who were so helpful uh, before in her search, they mistreat her. The ones who are supposed to be on the lookout against any you know, illicit activity in the city, they're the ones that end up mistreating her. Treating her like she's one of the veiled women. Remember the veiled women that would go to the shepherds for business. Treating her like that in this dream. So the search is risky. She's been hurt in the process, but she continues because she is lovesick. See how bizarre these dreams are. But the circumstances in the dream really seem to capture the real life difficulties, challenges to intimacy. The vineyard is not always full of roses. Uh, marriage bed is not always bliss. I think that's important for us to remember, whether we are in marriage or looking ahead to marriage, that this intimacy can be frustrating. Uh, expectations and 
desires of spouses. They can get out of sync. Can times feel like you have lost one another. Sometimes spouses can feel like uh, agreeable roommates sharing that same space but not moving toward each other and enjoying the space that they share together. The business of, of life is just distracting. Communication misfires. My wife and I like to call these flybys. She says something, I say something, and we think we understand what the other means, but we don't ask for clarification before you know it. We've completely missed. All those little foxes that threaten the vineyard of love. There's another loss that we find here uh, in chapter 3. I don't think it jumps out at us, but it's there in, this woman, uh, in the woman's dream. She sees this grand um, entourage coming through uh, the wilderness. Uh, this is in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And what she sees in this dream is herself coming to the wedding with all the, the splendor and opulence of Solomon's arrival. So now her, her dreaming has merged her beloved, her shepherd, with Solomon and this royal uh, procession. If they think about who the royal prince would be that every young maiden would be dreaming about, it would be Solomon. Solomon is her prince, and yet something has been lost. And this whole uh, procession, there is no focus or attention given to her, given to the bride. She's not mentioned even once by her Prince Solomon. We see in these verses, you know, them saying, O daughters of Zion, look upon King Solomon. So he's at the center of attention with all of his wealth, all of his power. Yet there is a sense that with all the admiration of Solomon, with all the admiration that he would give to so many women as king, there's still a loneliness there. He could have one of his many lovers by his side every night and yet miss what the man and the woman of this poetry uh, enjoy. Think of how Solomon's unions often worked. You know, he had hundreds of wives, concubines, often working to his own advantage for what he could get out of this marriage union to so many foreign women. So there's an attitude of sort of selfishness, an attitude of consumption here that's contrasted with what we're seeing between this man and woman in the poem, this self-giving attention, the desire that they have for one another. Selfishness, that is a great loss to intimacy. So this couple may not have all the wealth and splendor of Solomon, but they may have something much deeper and more valuable in each other than even Solomon would have known. Lost, searching for the one um, that they love. These dreams of broken intimacy, maybe we see a reality that we know well. Um, We've been made by God. We've been made to worship, find our soul satisfaction in Him, which means that we are always searching for our bridegroom, for the lover of our souls, whether we actually are conscious of this or not. He is the one we desire, even as we toy around with the lovers of this world. It was G.K. Chesterton 
who said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. So where is your search taking you? If you found, if you found the pearl of great price, the kingdom of God, the very grace of God in the face of Jesus, would you sell everything to keep it? Would you commit wholeheartedly to serving Him and living in obedience to Him for the greatest joy of your soul? So you could have it all, like Solomon, all the pleasure of women and wine, all the prestige and power that money can buy. You could spend all the days of your life searching frantically only to forfeit your soul. So if you know whom your heart seeks, if you've turned to follow Christ, do you pursue Him with the attention and focus that you would give to any other human relationship? Do you pursue Him when it may be risky, as it was for this woman in her dreams? Think of Psalm 40, as the dreams stand, or as the as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Does that describe your search, your hunger, your need for Christ? Maybe you're in that place where the Lord Jesus seems distant in your life, seems lost to you. Maybe the intimacy that you at one time knew with your Savior just isn't there anymore. Strains of, of depression. Just think of this last year. Um, illness that lingers. Shame of your own sin or deep sadness over sins of others. I mean, we watch the next riot and just sort of creates a riot in our own souls. Maybe you're in that sort of dark night of the soul, to quote that 16th century poem. So though we know the promises of God, we know that He is our keeper, that He's ever near, He may at times hide His presence from us. He's a wise Father. He may expose the emptiness of this world and and the dead end of where it is we've been searching. And He does this so that our, our union with Him and knowledge of Him would be all the sweeter. You see, we're not the only ones searching. We're not the only ones who desire to recover the security and the intimacy that's been lost. Hang on to that. This, this nightmare doesn't last for the woman here. Intimacy that was lost was restored. 3 verse 4, Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. So she has found her beloved. She desires to be close to him in the right way, in the context of security, the context of accountability. You see, their love relationship isn't this isolated thing from the rest of their family and the rest of the community in which they were a part of. This is the place where their love can can deepen and flourish. In chapter 4, her man, her prince, begins to admire her beauty to him, to only him. Listen to his words. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Chapter 4. Behold, you are beautiful. 
Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go to the fountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You hear such a desire. There's a desire, a pursuit there. You know, he, he's enraptured by her body, Yes, uh, but he wants all of her. So he, he, he takes a breath here, and then in verse 9, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. They're not actually brother and sister, but they, they share the closest bond of friendship, that closest bond of familiarity. They are knit body and soul in this marital union. They really are each other's complete package. One commentator in this passage uh, notes the risk that's being taken by this man when he offers his heart in this way. You know, a guy might say to a gal, you look really nice in that outfit. And a gal can respond with, oh, thanks. Life goes on. But if the man says, you have captured my heart, and she goes, oh, okay, thanks. That's just not quite enough. There's a little bit more that's needed there. Um, she either has to reject or accept that type of a sentiment. And so we find this young bride, she's fully accepting of his interest in her, his passion for her. Verse 11 and following continues to work down her body, longing to enter the garden of love that she has protected. Uh, she never, has never been entered before. As we get to verse 16 and 5.1, she invites him to enter into this garden, enjoy its choicest fruits. Uh, they found each other. Uh, she dreams of this uh, intoxicating intercourse. Glenn, you may need to turn up the AC a little bit because it's getting, it's getting warm in here. In Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, we have this, this complementary uh, wisdom to what we have here. Uh, erotic enjoyment, feasting on what is uniquely uh, observed by this man and his new wife. And there's a, a, a parallel to this finding, finding each other in chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. Uh, again, ending her dreaming in 6, verse 3, which is why we took this section all at once. I'll leave those, uh, those verses for you to read. But this time, the, the, the woman is describing her man. She's doing so in response to the questions of the others in verse 9. This could be the, the general community, maybe daughters of Jerusalem, other friends that she has that she's picturing in this dream. And they're not telling her where to go find her shepherd. Oh yeah, he's over there. Just go search in this part of town. Um, but they are asking her questions getting her thinking about why this search is so important to her 
Why, why are you going through all this trouble? Why taking so much risk? Uh, really wonderful counseling technique in this poetic dream. Most of the time, we don't need to be told an answer. What's needed are good questions that lead us to answer for ourselves what it is we are searching for. And so she starts thinking about this, starts at the top of his head and, and works her way down his body. Uh, and her dream ends in, in uh, chapter 6, 2 and 3 at the same destination that we saw in 5 verse 1. Sexual con- uh, consummation, intimacy restored. Um, so a few things we can take away. How, how does this finding and enjoying uh, translate for us in relationship? And one thing that really stands out from this dream, or the reoccurring dream of this woman is, again, her relationship is not some you know, utopian vision for relationships. Um, we're seeing ideal parts of this relationship, but also very real. Intimacy, not easy. Does not come without intentionality, effort, disappointments along the way. Again, important to understand this before marriage, just being married isn't going to instantly solve every desire for intimacy or make sexual fulfillment easy all of the time. It's not going to erase all uh, temptations to distort or misdirect sexual desire. And for those in marriage, I mean, you're in the crucible of the already and not yet of two lovers. And yet two sinners sharing this journey. So with every disappointment and frustration, you know, this could be in the area of, of sexual pleasure, but also in, in bearing children or not. There's longing, a, a hope for what could be in that relationship. A hope for what will be in this picture of God's love and His desire for His bride in visible glory. Counselor Dan Allender, he said, laboring to recover lost intimacy is worth the cost. It produces a deeper union of heart and soul to which the body can follow. Worth the cost. So this is real. I want us to hear that. It's real. This is what we know and experience. This passion is then pursued in the proper context at the proper time. We hear again in 3 verse 5, do not awaken love until it pleases. Did you note it? In 4 verse 1, as we read, the man describes the features of his bride. She's still veiled. Veiled until uh, their love is unleashed. So I'm thinking about the importance of modesty, the healthy application here. And we've been hearing the power of sexual desire. Uh, not something to be rushed into. Not something to be toyed around with. And, and modesty is a way of protecting that vineyard of love. Protecting what is intimate. When we cover our bodies, we're, we're actually acknowledging that there is shame when the naked bodies of sinners are exposed. Genesis 3 makes this very clear. This is why nudist colonies never work out. Because there's so much shame. Trying to suppress the reality of sin even as we long for unashamed nakedness. Modesty guards against the sensuality that the Bible speaks against. 
Sensuality is the mark of the unbeliever. So think about well, what is our dress conveying about what is important, who we associate with. And speaking of what is important, modesty actually demonstrates that we have more to offer in a relationship than simply what is on the surface. Um, hey, what, what you see is what you get. Love me for this. Is, is that really the message that we want to convey? Another reason to consider modesty and the virtue of modesty, I'm grateful for Kevin DeYoung's point here, is that modesty acknowledges that our bodies live in community. You think about the words we use. Our, our words and actions don't exist in a vacuum entirely unto ourselves. They exist in relationship to others. And so our bodies exist in relationship to others. So as Christians, we're considering how our bodies affect the spiritual relationship of those around us. This is for men and women. Jesus speaks to, to men and women in Matthew 5 about the adultery that's committed when we lust. And guys may be lusting with their eyes. Gals may want to be lusted after in their hearts. But both situations we see are a sin that must be turned from. Uh, just to complement that a little bit, uh, just because there may be an absence of modesty by the opposite sex, and this goes both ways, but I'm speaking a little more directly to the guys here, does not justify the absence of restraint. We're taking our thoughts captive for the glory of God. So just because she's leaving nothing to the imagination does not give you permission to lust and fantasize over her. Ladies, so when choosing that outfit, consider your, your heart motivation. Uh, what may be happening in relationships when that part of your body is accentuated. Um, if you're married and you're not sure, then the safety of your husband, put it on and ask him. He'll tell you. He should tell you. Young ladies who are not married. Um, the safety of the man who knows you the best, who would give his dying breath to protect you in the safety of that relationship. Put that on and ask him. He'll tell you. Um, I can just hear it now. Well, pastor, where are we supposed to shop? I'm not going there. We're not, we're not checking that off. Uh, there's no checklist here, but I hope you're hearing the, the trajectory, the biblical witness to protect, to guard, to tend the vineyard. So modesty is part of this moving toward what is beautiful so that you can be beautifully unleashed when awakened at the proper time. So this intimacy that, that we see pictured here, it's body and soul. Again, pushes back strongly against this casual relationship, hookup, you know, culture that surrounds us. This union has lifelong consequences, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. So as you consider a deepening relationship, a potential spouse, again, is it early 20s, mid 40s, late 60s? Okay, what are you thinking about? I mean, the, the physical intimacy and shared interests and hopes and dreams, those are all, all there together. But how about the most significant factor of all? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Really a simple picture here of two animals being yoked together. Now just imagine for a moment, so you can picture that yoke, that wooden yoke that holds them together, that you've got one of those draft horses on one side, Clydesdale horse maybe. That's the one that pulls a Budweiser carriage around just so the guys all know what I'm talking about. So uh, Clydesdale on one side and then the little pony on the other side. How well do you think that's going to work? and making a nice straight furrow in the field. It's not going to work very well. If you're going to commit to sharing your life with someone else, the most intimate parts of your life together, and he or she does not share your deepest convictions, your deepest values and hopes and longings for Christ, it's not going to go well. You say, well, wait a minute, God, God could change their heart. He promises to go to church. She mentioned God in one of our conversations. She must be the one. Slow down, Romeo. Slow down. Does this man or woman desire to please God in every part of their life? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit ripening in this person's life? Do they desire Jesus more than they desire you or this relationship. You say, you don't understand. He's, he's finally giving me some attention and I have waited so long for this. She's finally looking my way. We can actually talk together. Dear one, you're not alone. You are not alone. Your experience is not uncommon to humanity, though it feels very uncommon to you right now. The search may be long. There may be many starts and stops to this. And whether you end up married or not in this life, there is a crown of glory for those who endure in obedience to God. I was reminded in a podcast this last week, God's highest call for us as men and women. Again, it, it uh, applies to both men and women. But I think women need to hear this a little, a little more emphatically just because of the wiring of our hearts. Now God has made this. Um, God's highest call for you as a woman is not in being a wife or a mother. Not His highest call for you. His highest call is for you to follow Jesus. To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and some of you will do that as wives. Some of you will do that as singles. But that is his highest call for you. So I don't, we're not elevating marriage here to some super spiritual proportion. Even as we see this couple enjoying sexual pleasure in marriage. We'll see them united in real life at the end of this song. Marriage is the context, that place of safety and commitment where these desires can be unleashed. Marriage, the, the legal binding of marriage, that's God's design. Our sexual desire and consummation is intended to bind us to someone for life. So there, there's a tremendous risk, tremendous vulnerability when we open ourselves up in this way. So the safety and, and the lifelong commitment in marriage is the context. So when, when that promise, when that binding commitment is not there, 
then there's always an exit. I love you unless we have a falling out. I love you unless something better comes along. But a legal marriage says, I am committed to you even when things look like they're falling apart. Um, I love you um, and I'm not giving up this search. I'm with you to the end. That is the context. The closest we will come to, to unashamed nakedness in a fallen world. Unfortunately, the, the cohabitation I mean, is just as common in the church as it is outside of the church today. Um, does not communicate to the couple or to anyone else in this world the exclusive, committed, lifelong love that God intends for human flourishing. Here's Chesterton again. God gives rules so that good things can run wild. There's a great one for the dinner table. God gives rules so that good things can run wild. So I know there's a lot more that we could say on this. How abuse, physical abuse, emotional, sexual can, can fracture this commitment and the, the circumstances that can lead to dissolving a marriage covenant. Those conversations need to happen under the care of the Good Shepherd. Because you see, it's a good shepherd who seeks the lost. The good shepherd who seeks and finds his beloved. Think of Revelation 3. Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. He's knocking at the heart of a church. People who are lost, indifferent to his presence. But he hasn't turned away from them. They're they're lukewarm toward Him. He is zealous for them. He's passionate for them. He's committed. He's ready to feast with them again. He's trustworthy. He's always faithful and reliable and patient. There is no human marriage, no earthly spouse that can touch that. And so we long for our heavenly husband who says, my beloved is mine and I am my beloved's. This is the one who our soul loves. So when we are unresponsive or indifferent, we are never lost to Him. At great risk, at great cost, He searches us out, moved by His steadfast love, and finds us. In union with Him, we find that perfect, unashamed intimacy. So this is the marriage we long for, a marriage to our Good Shepherd who has laid down His life for us. Have you known the love of the Lord Jesus for you? That He cares for you like no one else can. With all your your mess, you are secure, you are safe in His arms. He died to make that so. He died so that your wedding day could have a permanent place on the calendar of history. He died to make that happen. So if you've not known this love, just hear the call of God's grace to you right now. Turn to Him. Lay it all before Him. There's forgiveness. There's freedom in the Lord Jesus. You may be sitting here, you know the love of Christ, but your heart is aching. Marriage that you hope for someday seems out of reach. The marriage that you're in leaves much to be desired. You're wondering if things will ever change. The marriage that you had 
It brings sweet memories and, and sadness all together. Look to the Lord Jesus. Fix your eyes on the beautiful one. He's, he's restoring every blemish. He's making us ready for the day when we will see him in all his glory. Do you long for that day? To see his face? Let's pray that he would usher it in soon. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Oh, our bridegroom, you are preparing us, making us ready to shine in your presence this great feast of love. We pray that through this intimate and passionate poetry that our hearts and minds would be drawn ever deeper into your love for us. You who have searched us out, you who have found us by your love. We thank you, O oh God, for what this word has shown us and continues to show us. Go before us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.